Glad you could join us for episode 77 of Fatalists. My name is Dave, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Wayne. And it's been a while, not not too long, but a while. Yeah, a little bit of a break there, uh, basically so I could watch Dark Angel. But uh, yeah, it's good to be back. Well, I'll tell you, man, there's been a lot on. And you know, this summer was certainly not a wasteland for good genre TV. So I think both of us were pretty busy trying to keep up. I finally got caught up uh, in the last weekend. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Because I did, like didn't watch uh, a Defiance for you know a long, long time just because there's other stuff. And yeah, it's 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 crazy. Um, well, not crazy. I guess I mean it's kind of good that so many of these shows are actually you know playing during the summer, which you know like when we were kids, summer was just rerun. You like barely watched bothered watching tv at all over the summer it's just like ah, it's just reruns whatever i guess they'll have to go outside and play or do something outside you know but uh but now they have shows that just run over the summer like falling skies like under the dome uh even though under the dome sucks um so you know it's like kind of flipped that whole idea on its head yeah well i think you and i are a little bit in the minority there because a lot of people clearly think under the dome's good but uh obviously we're not among them so hey you know, you know What's right is not always popular, and what's popular is not always right, Dave. You know, I think I have that in my room, don't I? Yeah, probably. <laughs> All right, well, anyway. Kind of like a teacher love- axiom. That's right. All right, we'd love to hear from you guys via email at fatalistpodcast at gmail.com, or you can go to the website at fatalist.podbean.com, leave a voicemail via the speak pipe tab, or just record your own audio clip and send the MP3 as an attachment. But... Tonight, we're here to finally discuss the pilot episode of James Cameron's cyberpunk series, Dark Angel, starring Jessica Alba and Michael Weatherly, in addition to giving you our abbreviated takes on The Leftovers, Falling Skies, and Extant. But before we do, it's time for Do We Care? And tonight, do we care, Wayne, that for the first time since the series began, that George R.R. Martin will not be writing any of next season's episode of Game of Thrones? Well, Dave, I would say maybe. Well, actually, I would say no, we don't care. The reason being, I didn't even know he wrote any of the episodes until you told me. So clearly, I could really care, not one bit really, about who's writing them. Uh, secondly, George R. R. Martin uh, is notoriously very snails paceish. It could be the way to describe how he writes. Like he he takes a long time to write these books. Um, he's a big football fan and he likes watching football and hanging out and I think drinking beer too. And so, uh, you know, it's obviously kind of, you know, but before he was whatever, I'll just, I'll, I'll write the book whenever I feel like it and you guys can just wait. You're going to buy it anyway. Right. But now obviously he is on a bit of a, he's on the clock, right? He can't yeah. take forever to write these books because HBO is like, dude, we're going to be caught up to you and like next season so we you need to finish out the books yeah which you know i do like that every man aspect of him you know the fact that he does let football get in the way of his writing but you know now like you said you didn't realize he wrote any of the episodes i knew that he did but i couldn't for the life of me tell you which one so i guess what we know then is that whatever writers they're hiring are doing an outstanding job so really at the end of the day do we care no because we know no. we're going to get quality programming. Yeah, like I said, like every episode is is really good. So unless he wrote everyone, then no, I don't care. I know he didn't write all of them. 
So, yeah, like you said, they obviously have awesome writers. He needs to get busy writing the next book. He can't yeah. be mucking about with the television. All right. Well, listen, in tonight's sci-fi news, uh, again, I, I think most, if not all, Lost Girl fans already know this, but I think we'd be remiss to not mention it. So Showcase obviously revealed last week that the previously announced fifth season of Lost Girl will be its last. And in a message to the show's fan base, Lost Girl star Anna Silk revealed that Showcase increased the original 13-episode order to 16 final episodes, bringing the series to a conclusion. Now, yeah, I guess in a, a nod, conscious or unconscious, to Doctor Who, the season's going to be split into two parts, with the first eight episodes airing Sundays at 9 o'clock Eastern on Showcase beginning December 7th. And then we just found out in the last couple of days that the final eight episodes are slated to air in the fall of 2015. The massive popularity of Lost Girls, a testament to the inventive and hardworking team at Prodigy Pictures, the magnetic and talented cast, and the most devoted and passionate fan base in Canadian television, said Barbara Williams, senior VP of content at Shaw Media. We're so proud that Showcase has been home to this landmark series, and we look forward to sharing these final 16 episodes with the show's fans. Lost Girl has been an incredible ride. We're so proud to have delivered a show with the groundbreaking message that you can live the life you choose, said executive producer Jay Firestone. And in the final season, and if you want to remain totally spoiler-free, just plug up your ears for about 20 seconds. In the final season, Bo goes to hell and back to try to save the people she loves, triggering an explosive chain of events that play out over the exhilarating final episodes. Spoiler part is over. Yeah, I, I think we all figured that was going to happen. So I don't know how yeah. much of a spoiler that is. That's barely at all. It sucks that the show is canceled, but you know, at least they get. I mean, to, to get more. Yeah, I mean, it just seems weird. Like the whole thing. Like you, you approve a season five, and they say, "Well, that's that's going to be it." Like months later, you know, like you'd think they would do that at the time. Like, okay, we're gonna one more season, but then you know that's gonna be. It, I, I don't know. It just it just seems weird. Well, obviously, whole... with uh, Continuum, and, and they still have not said one way or the other whether there's going to be a season four for Continuum. So you know, it just seemed like you said it seems odd the way they're dealing with things. But I guess at the end of the day, there are not many shows of any type that get five seasons. Sure. So and, and to and to get like to to know that it's going to be your last season is actually kind of an advantage because they're going to get to close out the story um, rather than, you know, have some typical season ending cliffhanger hoping that they'll get renewed again. Uh, but then they don't. And so the show never reaches any kind of closure. Yeah. And you wonder, is it really going to be two seasons of eight episodes each would be my guess. I mean, obviously they've been filming for a while now. Uh, I don't know, and we haven't gotten very much info about you know where they are in the filming. So, but it'll be okay, people. It will be okay. There is always something on the horizon that is good, right? And, and if we're lucky, even great. Yes. So, all right. Well, listen. Speaking of great, the Marvel franchise can cease its coupon clipping as Guardians of the Galaxy has surpassed the Lego Movie and Captain America: The Winter Soldier to become the highest-grossing movie of the year domestically. Film recorded the biggest August opening of all time and soon set a 10-day box office record. And with the end of August having arrived, Guardians of the Galaxy brought its domestic total to $262 million. And in doing so, has overtaken the Lego movie, which is now at number three, 
and Captain America, the Winter Soldier, now in number two. So, uh, you know, I think we don't have to worry about Marvel. And, no, uh, no. <laughs> no. They're doing okay. They're doing okay. And then lastly, uh, Stars has announced the renewal of their new series, Outlander, after that show aired only one episode, which I guess isn't too surprising seeing as the series debut set records for the pay channel. Uh, competing pay channel HBO has also announced renewal of its new series, The Leftovers. And we weren't quite as sure about that one because the numbers have been considerably lower than other HBO original shows. But the show's really stepped up its game as season one comes to a close. So yeah, I think at the end, it's, you know, it's probably not that expensive to produce. It's not as if they have a lot of special effects or anything like that. So good news. Uh, I certainly love The Leftovers. Uh, I've seen the first episode of Outlander Especially and liked Thanksgiving. it. Anyway, that's the news. We, as we told the listeners last week, we're going to get right to our topic first, and then we'll do our uh, review of the shows we're watching later. Yeah, no mucking about this time. We're, yep. we're getting right to it. Right. And tonight, I'm going to handle Project X, which is not going to be too long, but because of the genre of the show we're dealing with, which is Dark Angel... And and when you get down to it, when you really start thinking about it, and Wayne, I, I guess it really didn't occur to me until after I'd watched it a couple of times and then did a little bit of research on the background of the series that, I mean, I knew it was cyberpunk. I'm certainly familiar with cyberpunk. What I didn't realize was that there's really been so little cyberpunk on television. So in a sense, Dark Angel is pretty darn groundbreaking. Yeah. There's there's a lot to it that, and even watching it, like I had to go back and see, oh, did, you know, like for Birds of Prey, for example, you know, I mean, there's like that shot where she's sitting out on the top of the building and everything. It's like very Birds of Prey ish, and but uh, Dark Angel came first. Yeah, yeah. Now, what I want to do in Project X tonight is is basically what are we talking about when we're referring to something as being cyberpunk? All right, number one, and, and again, this is not all inclusive. These are just some characteristics that generally go along with the, in the genre. All right, advanced technology, but accompanied by a breakdown in social order. So I think when you certainly look at the setting in Dark Angel, that while there's not anarchy in the streets, the social order that we once knew is certainly gone. All right. Uh, now, very often the settings are a post-industrial dystopia, and obviously this whole idea of dystopias has become huge, but let's let's not forget that uh, we're talking about a show that debuted in 2000, 14 years ago. So before Hunger Games, before Divergent, before you know all of this plethora of of dystopian fiction that's out there now, Dark Angel was already on not the before air. The Giver, though. Well, at least the book. Yeah, true. True. And again, I mean, not that there haven't been dystopias before, but but certainly on television. Now, the other thing we see through cyberpunk, that the world is this dark, cold, uncaring place so that you see a lot of people that are basically, uh, you know, they're self-sufficient and they care only about themselves because they know that, generally speaking, nobody else is going to care for them. Uh, The characters are generally marginalized alienated loners typically on the edge of society and that's again front and center what we have here with max and uh the bicycle delivery guys that she works with uh the government's often seen as controlling and typically brutal 
which in turn, as you might imagine, fosters a rebellious populace. And, and again, we see that to some extent here. And then, uh, you know, again, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up the writer William Gibson. I don't want to say he's the father of cyberpunk, but he certainly is one of its one of its founders and one of its most important writers. Uh, he, yeah, well, well, Philip K. Dick. Well, Philip K. Too, Dick, absolutely. And, and it's funny because uh, I was watching part four of the BBC science fiction uh, documentary, and part four was about time travel, and uh, Philip K. Dick was front and center in that. And, and yeah, like you said, he's his work is very dark. Uh, the other work that that people may know uh, by William Gibson is a short story that was made into a film called Johnny Mnemonic, which stars arguably the finest actor of our generation. I, I don't know if you can put arguably in there, just straight up. Keanu Reeves. The greatest actor of, our, of, of, of his generation. Yeah, so, uh, but anyway, just a, a, a brief look at what cyberpunk is, and, and certainly if you've seen the pilot episode of Dark Angel, then you, you know, I, I think all of that stuff should ring true. So, why don't we jump and if in? if you haven't seen it, well, you're going to be spoiled. Yeah, but you know spoiled. what? I guess I'm getting to be more and more like that, where I'll listen to a podcast of a show I haven't seen yet, and then I go and watch it, and, you know, hell, I, for, I forget half of what the... Yeah, true. Know, so, true. all right. Well, anyway, Dark Angel, written by James Cameron. Uh, he made this little movie called Titanic you may have heard of, and uh, heard of a movie yeah. called... Eternal. Avatar, I yeah. think, was... Uh, it was it, I, I think it did okay at the box office. Yeah, uh, and then Charles Egley... Those Terminator movies, actually, uh, I think a couple, they're, they're, they've become uh, kind of cult favorites. Yeah, no, I think what really surprised both of us was the director, David Nutter, that when we, uh, what were some of the things he, he did? Yeah, I, uh, I didn't make a list, but uh, you know, he's apparently, you're, if you are making a pilot and you want the show greenlighted, you got to get David Nutter to, to direct it for you. So, um, he, well, he did uh, the Arrow pilot, right? Yeah, yeah 2012. And he started Supernatural. Spa- Space Above and Beyond in 1995. Uh, Millennium, I don't know if you remember that show. It, it, it came uh, on the heels of the it. X-Files. It was, yeah. Fox was trying to, you know, once the X-Files hit big... They added Millennium, and and it was really a dark, you know, kind of supernaturalist show. That uh, I mean, it was good, but it just didn't get an audience. But he did that. Sleepwalkers '97, Roswell '98, Dark Angel '99, Smallville '2001, Supernatural '2005, Terminator, Sarah Connor Chronicles '2007. Yeah, that's the big one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, The Mentalist '2008. You mentioned Arrow in in 2012, and then. 2014 the flash so you know like you said if you want your pilot to succeed get david nutter to direct it right so i mean pretty much every pilot that he directed from 1995 to 2014 um became a series except for the doctor in uh 2011 yeah which i guess is why we've never heard of it i guess exactly Uh, and that's why there's no link to it on wikipedia as well yep all right well on to Dark Angel, the pilot, which is actually two episodes, depending on where you look, which episode guide you look at. Um, you know, some places consider it two separate episodes. Some look at it as just one, but it aired on October 3rd, 2000, aired on Tuesday night during season one, but they moved it to Friday night for season two. And the other interesting thing is that James Cameron made his television directorial debut with the series finale in 2002. So, 
You know, I mean, the pedigree here was, was, uh, I guess, pretty significant. I, I certainly didn't follow the show when it aired back then. And I'm, I get, to be honest, I'm not sure why. Yeah, well, that for me, I mean, I know that that was, you know, during the time I just really wasn't watching television at all because, um, you know, had babies. Yeah, sure, uh, understandable. But uh, so, so I know my excuse at least. Yep. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I wasn't even on my radar. Like when you said Dark Angel, I was just like, mm, no, you know, no clue. But you know what? I I did. I realized the other day. Um, just kind of flipping the stations and uh, the, the Fantastic Four was on HBO. Wow. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Jessica Alba was, uh, you know, the Invisible Girl, Sue Storm or Sue Richards, however you want to put it. Yeah. In, yeah. The, uh, in the awful, awful Fantastic Four movies. Yeah. Now, you know, it, it's interesting because, you know, like you said, uh, it took you a while to actually watch it. And then our first conversation after you'd watched it, there were some aspects of it that you weren't thrilled with, right? Well, yeah, like the the start, the you know, I I don't even if I had watched this back in uh, two thousand one, I don't know if I would have gotten past the first five minutes because they went with the voiceover, Dave, the voiceover. Yeah, it's the lowest level of narration in television and movies, and they went right to it. Is I, I almost didn't make it. Well, you know, the defense I would have, I think, is that you're, you're telling a fairly complex story and it enabled the storyteller, I think, to speed things up. I mean, that, I, I'm with you. I'm not a big fan of the voiceover either, but I, I think that's probably the only excuse we can get. But the open- I think the information that she gives us in the voiceover is they, they disseminate that through the episode anyway. So they could have just shown her escaping from this place, and and that, you know without any dialogue or voiceover at all, right? They can just show the escape, and then as the as the uh, episode continues, as the season continues, which is what they're doing anyway, is we learn little bits at a time about what was happening at that hospital yeah. or research facility, whatever. Now you're, you're right. Now, the one thing I want to say as we, as we start talking about the opening scene is that, you know, they do give us finite dates, but you know, I guess if you look at it in present day terms, you know, I think it makes it maybe a little more, I don't know, exciting, but, but for instance, okay, we start in Gillette, Wyoming, 2009, well, right now, that's five years in the past. For then, it was nearly 10 years in the future. And we're introduced to this large group of children all dressed in plain gray bags, for lack of a better description. I mean, that's, that's what it looked like. Um, all with heads shaved. I mean, it was an image out of uh, concentration camps in right. World War II. No, I, th- I think that's definitely what they're going for, to, to hearken that, that these kids are prisoners, you know, and, and so they, yeah, they look like, a Holocaust victims, right? Absolutely. Other than the fact that they were that they were well fed and and in, right. in good shape, but but everything right. else, like you said, and we see them running through a wooded area at night during the winter, and and if I recall, they might have even been barefoot. Well, they were, yeah. But obviously, they have a certain resistance to the cold, as a uh, you know Max hides underneath the ice, right? Right. So, uh, you know, clearly, you know, I mean, that, that generally kills people. Yep. And, and uh, you know, we, we slowly get 
pieces revealed of the puzzle. We learn that there are these military types bent on recapturing them. And if they, quote, reach the perimeter, they're to be terminated. And we find yeah. out that seven were captured, three wounded, two were killed. And then, you know, one of the soldiers is like, yeah, it's 10 degrees out here. How far can these kids get? One of the kids falls through the ice, but survive. And like you mentioned, we learn her name is Max. Uh, and that is, of course, the grown-up Jessica Alba, who is telling her story in Dark Angel. As an adult, we see Max, who's this bicycle delivery person. And one of the, the points that keeps recurring throughout this episode is that she wonders about the others and whether any got away. And, and through a series of flashbacks, we find out that these kids were part of an experiment to create some sort of super soldier. Well, that, she she learns that she she didn't know that. Well, right, she doesn't know it at that point. But I mean, yeah. as the you know, I mean, we seen and and again, right, right. That's one of those things that you and I were talking about at work a, a while ago about whether or not this is a trope. You know, this whole idea of the super soldier, the you know, the genetically enhanced human, because that's what they that's what they are, right? And, yeah, and I think um, you know. Nowadays, that is becoming more of a trope because I think because it's becoming like more of a realistic possibility, right? I mean, this idea that we can genetically enhance a person to make them stronger or faster or smarter or whatever. I mean, that's like not an unrealistic concept. Right. Now, again, this is 2000. Uh, you know, we had the X-Files episode. Uh, where they had, if you you may not remember, uh, Adam Baldwin and Lucy Lawless were in it. And uh, then there was the episode uh, Eve in season one, where they were creating and cloning humans with superior strength and intelligence, which obviously that predated uh, Dark Angel. Of course, River Tam is a genetically yep. enhanced human. Yes. Uh, you know, in Heroes, we've got some, uh, of course, even in Dollhouse, one of the projects of the Rossum Corporation is to create this unit of uh, like-minded super soldiers and, and create some sort of a super army. I mean, uh, the Cortexafan kids in fringe the, you know, finally of a current series in defiance, the bio men. So, yeah. you know, and, uh, but Dolph Lundgren and, uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme. Sure. And, and universal soldiers. Right? right. Right. So, I mean, I think it's fair to say it's become a trope, but, uh, again, I'm going to give dark angel the benefit of the doubt because in 2000, uh, it wasn't as much, not that it hadn't been done before, but you know, not, not like today. So, right. All right. So uh, we're, we're set then in current times with Jessica Alba as an adult. Now they're in Seattle, 2019. And I can't remember if they actually say Seattle, but certainly that's must be the space needle, right. That we see her sitting on. Um, you know, I didn't really think about it, yeah. but I guess, yeah. And, and again, but I'm pretty sure they did say, um, Seattle. Yeah. There was just always people who were drinking coffee a lot. So, right. So 2019, you know, back then that's 20 years into the future. So, you know, in, in our times, I guess you think of it as 2034, uh, you know, that's pretty far into the future. And, you know, just to get back to the Space Needle scenes there, because I think there were at least two of them where we see her sitting. And it was really, to me, reminiscent of what we saw at the end of very many episodes of Birds of Prey with the three women standing yes. on top of the, uh, I guess it was the clock tower, right? Right. And uh, pretty cool. We've got this post-apocalyptic setting 
Years after terrorists exploded an electronic pulse bomb 80 miles above the ground, sent the city into a depression, city divided into zones, uh, you need passes to move about. Um, it seems like a police state, wouldn't you say? Well, yeah, we, there's guys in Kevlar and guns all over the place, you know. But, um, but on the other hand, though, there seems to be a lot of organized crime occurring as well as, you know, like the main bad guy in this episode, as we see with him. Yeah, yeah. And, and I really did like, now, uh, fans of NCIS instantly recognize Michael Weatherly, who plays Tony Dinozo in, in the most popular scripted drama on television. And uh, <laughs> so this was pre-NCIS by a couple of years. And he's awesome. I, I really like him, and I love you know that. I mean, first of all, you know, the, we, we just figure it's some hacker, and he's known as Eyes Only for obvious reasons. And he puts out these little sixty-second freedom video, streaming anti-corporate messages with his voiceover. Although, albeit a different kind of voiceover. Right, but you know, you're, you're putting your eyes there, and I think I feel like that. If if you want to remain completely anonymous, you shouldn't really put like your eyes, which I think are fairly identifiable, right? And you think by 2019, you know, I mean, we, obviously they already have eye scan technology now, right? So and, and clearly, in 2019, they totally would have that, and you're just you know putting them out there. Yeah. Why not hold your driver's license up next to it, dude? Yeah, clearly he's never heard of Huntress and uh, her refusal right. to wear a mask. Exactly. Yeah, but uh, you know, but but it does you know, put another storyline out there. But what I really like though, is that whole idea of the pulse bomb, you know, that, that, you know, we've talked about it in real life. Yeah. Well, it's not, it's not like a bomb. No, no, no. It's, right. It's right. It's an actual EMP, like just right. the pulse itself, but it trashed the city, obviously. Well, right. And, and, but that's something we've talked about in real life for a number of years now that, you know, our real vulnerability lies in our online lives. That if someone were to wipe out, say, the internet and things that are stored electronically, we'd all be screwed, right? Yeah, but you know, I might get out of my mortgage though too. Well, you might, yeah. and again, you know, we see this city in the United States. That's, I mean, it's it's certainly not chaos, but I mean, it it, it takes us back to what we see in the in the city of defiance, if you will. You know, there's almost this right. this frontier yeah. type of town, just kind of. Uh, well, of course, I guess the difference is re- defiance is kind of rebuilding, like we did in the West. In Dark Angel, they're just pretty much living am- amidst the ruins. Right, but there, you know, there are still police that are policing the ruins, right? Because right. they have to pay off the police officer uh, and everything. So, you know, that's. Um, and that's really the only sign of authority that we actually get, right? I mean, you know, we see the guys in the streets with guns, but um, there's no actual run-in between Max and the authorities, except for this police officer who allows them to squat there, right? Uh, you know, so long as he gets paid off. Right. Now, we do find out that it wiped out every electronic record east of the Rockies, so I, I guess maybe, you know, out on the West Coast, they've got all their records, but... You know they're in Seattle, supposedly. So uh, I, I guess then the the line of thinking is that you know the world of banking, so to speak, takes place in New York, and since 
you know, the East Coast is out. Either way, America is now a broke ex superpower, just like everybody right. else, a third world nation, if you will. And- yep. Yeah. And, and yeah, because everything we see really is, I mean, we know, well, not everything, because the uh, bad guy lives in a, you know, beautiful house. Uh, but Max's life is, you know, very squalid. Right, right. And, and certainly, I mean, that's a theme that, you know, well, I, it's a theme we certainly see in continuum in the, in the future that Kira Cameron comes from, where that, that, that divide between the haves and the have-nots is, is pretty wide. And, and certainly it's something, again, in real life that we've been talking about politically for the last few years. And, you know, so I, I guess that's explained with what you just said. The, uh, the, the one voiceover that I did really like, uh, and I think I hated it less than you did, but, but the one where she's kind of describing the scene, and then she notes that people are broke, but they're not all that depressed. And you look at the, the group of people that we are privy to, which are, are pretty much the, the lower end of the socioeconomic strata you know, in this society, and they all do seem pretty happy. Um, yeah, I, right. Cause people don't seem like they're suffering, you know, like people are still apparently able to eat and like the, the place that they live, this apartment uh, building, you know, you, you really don't think that it's, they're squatting in an abandoned building until the cop shows up and, you know, we, that, then we find out then. Right. I mean, we don't know what kind of money they make as these delivery people, but, but they do make money. They do make yeah, a salary. Yeah, buy a, a bitchin' bike, a motorbike. Yeah, and, and she wants to buy, a, I guess, a better one. But right. so, so I guess to a certain extent, the rent she's paying is, is you know, graphed to the, uh, the policeman that, that comes up that is the benefit of her genetically enhanced coffee. Is that, is that fair? <laughs> she, yeah, that's, that's a nice euphemism yeah, for it. She's been uh, spitting in his coffee each week. But the thing that bothered me, though, at the beginning, and maybe even through about a half hour of the episode, was just kind of the, the language, the lingo, the uh, almost this over-the-top hipsterness. And, you know, but then it hit me, well, that's what, kind of what cyberpunk is all about and really just trying to establish this culture and well how else do you establish a subculture if not through yeah you, know, you got to have your own language exactly right? exactly yeah. so that once i wrapped my head around that it, it made it much easier and and obviously it, it's a huge part of the episode so yeah yeah i didn't really i don't know i mean i i, I didn't really notice i mean not that it wasn't there i'm just it, it, i guess it just didn't really bother me much i didn't even really notice that the the language you know usage and then you say and i was like thinking about it, like oh, okay but yeah it just really kind of I, I guess i just kind of assumed it as you know like you said there's kind of a realistic demonstration of the subcultures um you know kind of identity yeah and and the subculture we see it's it, like we said they're they're bike delivery people and their boss is a dick so you know normal yeah yeah normal do you know what his full name is uh no i, I saw it on imdb his, his I, name is reagan ronald <laughs> and he goes by normal all right well we got a couple of stories that are working their way through the episode and story a if you will max is trying to find the woman who rescued her 
on the night of the escape. So we see again in, in a flashback that Max becomes separated. This is as, ch- as a child. Uh, it's, you know, the snow, it's winter, it's night. And a woman in a car stops and befriends her and essentially rescues her. So, she says, come with me if you want to live. Well, yeah, essentially she does. <laughs> uh, and she now as an adult has hired a private investigator who's, uh, you know, so that she can find this woman. Now, he's searching for kids with barcodes on their necks, and we realize that they all have been tattooed with this barcode, her including uh, included. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I think, again, it doesn't take us long to realize that that's probably going to draw some attention, but this is 10 years later. But we do find out they're still being looked for. Right. Right. And, you know, probably, you know, as we see Jessica Alba, like her, she's got her hair covering it. Does she even know she has it before uh, Logan kind of? Oh, no, she knows. Okay. Yeah, yeah, she definitely Um, knows. And we just assume all the guys now have grown out mullets and stuff to cover theirs over. So Right. Now, you know, the other interesting thing about her character, and and again, I, 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 is it fair to call her an anti-hero? I mean, you know, she's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, she steals from the rich to support her drug habit. Now, her granted, tr- apparently, what was, as a result of what was done to her as a child, and she needs these drugs, basically well, anti-seizure. Yeah, she, she has seizures, dude. You don't call it a drug habit. She well, needs medicine for her epilepsy. Oh, well, true. Okay, but, but she sees nothing wrong with this right. life of, you know, non-violent crime. Yes. But at the end of well, the day, it's, it's crime. Right, and, and on top of that, she is doesn't want to help. Any, she, you know, she is wants to stay under the radar. She doesn't want to be found. So she is, at first, um, completely resistant to helping anybody out. Um, and of course, she changes her, you know, her mind later. But, uh, um, but you know, that's like Logan is basically forcing her and bribing her to be a hero. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Which again is another one of those themes, the reluctant hero that I just love. Um, now you mentioned Logan, uh, who we come to find out is eyes only, but we're introduced to him, you know, on a, on a personal level when she breaks into the home of this guy, because she had seen, I guess, with her enhanced vision, the, this art object, right? So she, uh, breaks into the home and that's when she, you know, sees him in his little mini studio and he's ranting against big pharmacology, which he claims is holding back cancer cures and a remedy for what we find out is called Balkan syndrome. And that's what her, her, uh, work friend is dying from, but you know, she's breaking into this guy's house. Yes. That's bad. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, it's also that scene. It's, it's great because, um, it really kind of starts to get out this theme of like the deceptive appearances. Sure. Uh, she breaks in the house and there's this lady and girl there. And of course we all assume that that's his wife and child. And then there's a big guy. You think he's this big guy would be able to break this, you know, this woman into this tiny woman. And, uh, she just absolutely kicks the crap out of him. Yep. So, um, there's a lot of things. And then, you know, Logan, who uh, appears to be a like a dilettante uh, who is not really just kind of like a rich boy 
do, you know, trying to get his rocks off by being eyes only. Well, we discover he really is very um, conscientious and very committed to trying to make things better. Yeah, absolutely. And and the I, I think the nice juxtaposition is with Max, whose morality is nebulous at best because she's only concerned with herself and her own survival. But I guess. To be fair, she's also concerned with the survival of her little pack. Um, right. But, you know, she doesn't see... Even the, even the douchebags. Yeah. I mean, she like, doesn't see stealing like? to survive as bad, even though cheating on a girlfriend is with, uh, right. with Sketch, which we'll, who we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, well, we find out that the project that she was uh, involved in in his child is called Project Manticore and uses recombinant DNA which is basically DNA combinations that's not that are not otherwise found in nature and that are combined uh sounds like something out of the island of Dr. Moreau to right. to produce superior humans technically they're chimeras and that's what project manticore is all about we find out that 12 of the kids escaped so now that she knows that we can assume it and and if we didn't say it already Wayne and I have not seen any of these episodes so we're you know we're well we've seen i've seen the one now you well wait, we've seen the first one but now that she knows that 12 of the kids escaped and we learn that she knows of one you know through the uh, private investigator that's got to be part of the focus of the show i would think sure. is is reuniting with some of these because 12 escaped I'm going to guess that some of them have either been recaptured killed or just perhaps even died um, you know, living out their lives, so to speak. Um, and obviously we see these drugs being used on these kids. We see the kids being taken into labs and basically dissected by these doctors trying to figure out perhaps what went wrong and things like that. Uh, but the byproduct is the seizures that still persist to this day in Max and we assume the others. Yes. Um, yeah, absolutely, and you know, and, and mostly the, that head—I can't remember the, the main kid's name—who seems to kind of be the leader of all these. Kids yeah, I can't remember either. But engineered the the breakout. But yeah, I was actually just kind of like glancing through, and I saw some. Uh, it said before that we don't really see evidence of a police state, and I realized it's completely inaccurate because there's like these little drones that follow people around, right? Yeah, and and so much like today, where you know the people of of that society are under, you know, almost constant surveillance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, and, and certainly drones can be used for good. Like hopefully Amazon will start delivering my packages with a drone in a couple of hours, just drop it on my front step. But, uh, that's another story. Now the other storyline, you know, I guess focuses on eyes only and Max's involvement reluctant as it is in bringing down Edgar Sonrisa who is this real uh, douchebag of a corporate head who's apparently uh, the head of the head of, of the big pharmacology company that has the medication that will cure Balkan War Syndrome. But what they do is they take the medication out, fill it with, what what they say, sugar? Sugar, yeah. And presumably selling the the other drug to even higher bidders, so that these veterans who are being told they're given they're being given the cure are really b- 
being given nothing more than a placebo. Right. You know, and, and, and we that has tragic consequences. Yeah, for, uh, right. For and Theo we see, there. Right. We see that through the death of Max's friend's husband, which, you know, I, I don't know if he says Balkan syndrome, but I think we have enough clues to know that's what it was. And it's really kind of his death that sparks her to make a commitment, however small at the beginning, to help bring down Edgar Sonrisa. You know, then then we've got that uh that scene where she's mourning at the the depot with the other messengers and that televised news report airs and she sees the police drones shoot and then capture the occupants of a car. And that's when we see that it turns out to be Logan, uh, his bodyguard. And the, well, the, the, the drones didn't do it. That was, well, they were following it. Right. That was right. Right. The drones were taking the picture right. and we saw um, it turns out to be Bruno and his buddies, uh, shooting up the car and then yeah, taking um, uh, Lauren, Lauren, Captain, right? Lauren's in Yeah. It? Yeah. Right. And as a matter of course, in this, you know, gunfire exchange, Logan ends up having, I guess, what is his spine severed or something. And so now he's right. paralyzed from the waist down and operates. Again, hello, birds of prey. I was going to say operates out of a wheelchair uh, in a room full of tech. Yeah. Uh, although this, this so birds of prey is looking less and less original with every moment we're watching dark <laughs> angel <laughs> that's, okay. that's okay well for all we know though the comic preceded dark angel but well yeah it, it def- yeah. definitely did you're right um but anyway and, and and like we said we see again you know the the you didn't watch alias right no the uh, but you keep telling me it's really good yeah so. it is really good and and you know there is uh, again kind of this well, I mean, it is a trope. Alias aired, uh, gosh, let's see, what, 2000, must have been 2004. I'm not sure. But, but you know, the whole idea of going, you know, the, the, you know, going on, going into the party, she puts on the red dress, you know, gets her hair, gets her makeup, and you know darn well she's going to go in there and kick ass, which is, of course, what she does. Um but for somebody that doesn't do this sort of thing, uh, those were her words, it was a pretty good plan, you, yeah. you know, to bring the whole thing down. I mean, it, that was a complicated plan. It, it was a very complicated plan. And, you know, it's uh, the, the suspense and tension is kind of kept in there because when she, like, for example, she tells Sonrisa, I've got Lauren and give me some money, I'll give it to you. And we really don't know that much about Max at this time, except for she is, uh, you know, a, um, a misanthrope, it seems kind of. And so it seems potentially likely that she really is selling her out, you know? Yeah. Um, and so we, we are dubious about her, uh, motivations, I guess, through throughout until we realize, you know, the whole plan kind of comes together at the end, and it's just like, wow, that was very complex, but really super awesome. You know, the, the way she uh, tricked Bruno into thinking that Sonrisa wanted to burn him, and and then uh, you know, pretending that Bruno shot her so that he goes off chasing after Sonrisa, and uh, the phone call, right? Yeah. She gets uh, some Risa to f- the call where uh, um, where the daughter's being held, and because she can remember uh, a telephone number just by hearing it dialed, uh, she so she knows where it is, and so it's just all kinds of uh, really cool stuff going on there. Yeah, and uh, you know she you know that whole scene where she's breaking in 
to Sonrisa's compound uh, at the beginning, it, it kind of straight out of Alias. And then once she gets in and, you know, she's going to rescue the whistleblower's daughter uh, who's being held at, uh, as leverage after she, you know, gets the dress from the, uh, the hooker that's there uh, and then goes, you know, starts walking down the street. Which I just need to take this. Okay. To say, really? Yeah, I know. Really? Yeah. Listen, I'm not an expert on women's clothing, but I know there's not a chance in hell that between the, the size of the, the woman who was played the hooker and Jessica Alba, there's no way that dress is going to look like that. There's no way that dress fits her. Well, no, she, they just, you know, to show her altering the dress, <laughs> take, we just assumed just that two, ha- <laughs> right. that took place off she, camera. She, she, she probably had like a, a portable sewing right. you know, and, kit. But, but then like that. that the other hooker that, that crosses her path, girl, you work that dress. And I I guess what I liked about that one line is that you could see on one level that really boosted her confidence because, you know, she's certainly confident in her ability as a soldier, but, but she's a young woman. And, you know, while she's been genetically altered for all of these, you know, military purposes, she's still at the heart, a young girl, a young woman. And like any of us, we are flattered when somebody thinks we're attractive and you could even see that in her. And it's probably something that she's experienced so little, or, or at least at this point, we, we, you know, we don't see her, you know, in in that kind of a situation. Right. Um, But the scene with Bruno, like you mentioned the complexities of the plan. So she, you know, it's the whole deal, you know, half money now, half, later and 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 sonrisa says no 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 that's not going to work and then she says well why don't you give bruno the money and the you know send him with me gets in the hotel in the motel room and she starts kicking his ass it's like come on you're not even trying she t- yeah, well, not, not before she gives him like you know or like he thinks okay you know i'm gonna get lucky here right and everything kind of not i mean she flirts with him to get him off his game but he like takes it seriously right right now um and i forgot the guy's name but but we've got the the guy that's the leader of project manticore yeah leidegger leidegger right leidegger Leidegger. okay and he showed you know he's now tracked them down because of the careless i guess investigations of her private investigator um which i thought was pretty funny uh we've got i forget the number you know like 19 searches and you know north dakota or wherever they were and it's like well it could be a coincidence like yeah really yeah the one guy actually says that like it could be a coincidence yeah yeah uh that guy's actually uh you know he looked familiar and it's john savage is the name of the guy who plays lydecker and he was actually in the deer hunter he was one of the main parts in the deer hunter i think his part was stevie i think uh-huh and then um actually the the movie hair which i really like i mean i love that's like, I don't know, I might be putting something out there saying that I like the musical hair. But uh, the movie version is actually, I thought it was quite good. Treat Williams was in it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw it at the Lyric. Did, oh, yeah. you know what? I did too. Yeah. Like, like maybe like 10 years ago or yeah. so? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah, maybe I was in the same very same theater, didn't even know yeah, it. Yeah, I think we were even working together then, but... Uh, we might have been, anyway, yeah. But... Uh, well, anyway, so, uh, you know, we, we get to the end of the episode and it's, 
kind of clear that Michael Weatherly, uh, uh, Logan Kale wants her to work with him. She clearly is reluctant to do it. Um, look, they're already uh, giving us these little inklings that the two of them are going to get together um, as as some sort of a relationship. I mean, look, like you, you and I have no way of knowing. I mean, and right. for sure, no, I, I agree. It's it's th- there's definitely something there. I mean, there was that one scene earlier where he's talking to her, and it seems like he's flirting with her, hitting on her. Yeah. And he's actually puts his hand on the back of her neck, and she's actually closes her eyes like she's into it. And then we realize, oh no, he just wants to see if she's got the barcode back there. Right. And yeah. the nice thing, because I always try to find a picture to uh, upload along with the, uh, you know, the podcast episode. And there's just so little out there. I mean, it was the same thing with Birds of Prey that that certainly while the internet was a big deal in in 2000. It's not like it is now that you know if you if you uh, Google images defiance season two finale you got probably hundreds to choose yeah, from right and they're and they're all pretty high quality so I guess what I'm getting at is I haven't really seen anything out there that would indicate that they are or they're not a couple so you know we'll just see how that goes uh, you mentioned he comes from money his parents were rich and now he's trying to bring down the system so obviously that's a uh, going to be a central storyline, I would think. This bringing down of the corporation again, not unlike what they're doing in Continuum, trying to bring down the corporate Congress. Absolutely, yeah. There's a, there's a lot uh, you can see that Continuum is you know really has kind of taken quite a bit from Dark Angel. Sure. If uh, if Simon Barry has ever actually seen Dark Angel, yeah, well, I would think so. But uh, yeah, probably. you know the whole idea of of trying to restore individual rights that have been taken away. And, and again, that's, that's, uh, we've always said great science fiction explores those ideas. I mean, it's not about spaceships and laser guns and time travel. I mean, those are all just byproducts. It's a, it's about these, these issues. And, and, and that certainly looks like what they're going to explore here. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. We've said before, like good science fiction will kind of the, the human element is going to be front and center. Right. And all the, the spacey, timey stuff um, obviously will be there. I mean, that's what makes it uh, science fiction. But uh, you have to have that central human element or it's, it's not good. Right. Now, the, uh, I guess just to throw out some of the characters that we get introduced, uh, Max's lesbian roommate, Kendra. Now, we got Theo, who's Max's co-worker that's been sick with not the anymore. Baltimore War syndrome. Yeah, he's... He's kind of dead. Uh, yeah, and and he dies. I don't think dies. it's going to be any more episodes. Right, and you know, again, I think that certainly serves to you know, I, I guess, propel Max into this world that she's now going to be in with Logan and and you know, fighting Sonrisa. Right. And you know, certainly you bring down Sonrisa. We know that he's probably not the only corporation involved. Sure. Well, he hopefully not because he's dead too. And then you know, you're only, if you're only bad guys already dead, then you're the show's in trouble. All right. Now uh, we already mentioned normal Reagan Ronald, the uh, dispatcher, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, again, that was pretty interesting when they're collecting money because the the box comes in with uh, Theo's ashes, right? But it's like COD, right? Which is that seems weird you're right so they all start pitching in and he's 
He, I mean, he's just really. And then when he, uh, yeah, he exactly, how much of an asshole do you have to be to say no? I am not going to contribute any money so that this guy's ashes can be delivered to his family, right? Right. Like really, right? And then when he tries to begrudgingly put some money in, they won't let him. Yeah, that was that was slick. Yeah, that was that cool. Was awesome. I like how they're like, no, we're not going to let you do it. Uh, you know, you're not one of us, right? Right. Now you you were trying. You were mentioning Max's friend that she bar hops with. Uh, original Cindy. Original Cindy. And yes. uh, now <laughs> Logan, you know, he's trying to track Max down. And I th- again, that was pretty cool. He's got the surveillance and he zooms in on her, her delivery, uh, bicycle delivery ID and tracks her down. I guess original Cindy doesn't like the fact that uh, her friend's being hit on or so she thinks by this guy. And did you catch that? She mentioned uh, Zena's on. Come on. Oh, I did not catch that. Yeah. No. So uh, now <laughs> the other guy, Sketch. Yeah, Calvin. Yes, and he's pretty sketchy. And I think yeah. I think the terms. I'm not sure if the term sketchy was in use back then, but uh, fellow rider who's cheating I, I on his like girlfriend. You think it was okay? I think so. I feel like it was okay. Yeah. Well, he's cheating on his girlfriend, and then he wants Max to help him get out of the cert- situation because. This woman that he's cheating with is basically just using him as a boy toy. And as he points out to Max, it's like, you don't understand. I don't get to be a toy. Right. Which, I mean, I'm not, I'm not justifying what he did. Yep. But, you know, you can kind of understand as being someone who is, you know, it's, it, it doesn't, right. It, it doesn't make it right. Yeah. But. I kind of understand at, on a certain level. Yeah. So, Don't tell my wife I said that, yeah, but, no, you know. No, no. Fortunately, no. Nope. And also in his defense, like, she was really hot, you know? Like, that has to be taken into account. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what does have to be taken into account is how Max solves his problem for him, which was awesome. Yeah, that that was, that was awesome. Dr- that, that, I think that's the point where... I really start thinking that this show is is pretty effing good. Yeah, but well, you yeah. know it, what it does. I mean, to a certain extent, it's the same thing that Birds of Prey does or did. Is that you know it's serious most of the time, but it's certainly got enough light scenes so that it's not you know beating you over the head. And and I guess to a certain extent, that's what cyberpunk does you know, through a lot of these marginal characters who we almost see as borderline ridiculous in some cases. Yeah. And I think also like we talked about that human element, you know, the, the moderate humor helps, you know, bring that out. You know, it helps us relate to the characters more and understand them. Like you said, not as ridiculous caricatures or stereotypes, but as actual human beings. Yeah. So, uh, and then the final scene where Max is back sitting on the space needle. And, and I guess on the one hand, we might ask how the hell did she get up there? But we've seen that there's very, yeah. very little that, uh, that she, she can't maneuver around through on top of under. And, and I guess that's her, her space that she goes to clear her head at the end of, you know, whatever, uh, you know, she's gotten herself into, but, uh, I'm sure that's not the last time we're going to see her up there. No, it seems to be it's going to be kind of a recurring type thingy. So, 
I don't know. Anything else you want to say about it? I, I really enjoyed it. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, continuing with this show. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, like I said, at, at first, the first five minutes, I was like, Dave, what? I don't I don't see us doing multiple episodes of this, you know. But uh, once the uh, the actual story started kicking in and once we see Jessica Alba in action, like, yeah, it was fantastic. It was, it was really good. All right, cool. Why don't we take a look at our genre show quick takes now? You're going to talk about The Leftovers and Falling Skies, and I'm going to take a look at Extant. Just seems that uh, now both of yours were single episodes, but it seems like a lot of the genre shows have been into double episodes the last few weeks. So that, that was certainly the case with Extant. It was the case with the Defiance final. And, uh, you know, maybe next week we'll, we'll also, I think we have to talk a little bit of Doctor Who, but uh, not prepared to tonight. So uh, what do you got as far as the leftovers go? I, I thought it was, again, another awesome episode. Yeah, you know the leftovers is has kind of their thing is that unexpected stuff keeps happening all the time, right? And that is true in the beginning of this, but then once the show starts and once we see what's going on, then we totally know what's coming at the end. And the reason for that is that this particular episode starts off with Kevin. He's running. Uh, he stops. At a mailbox, he reaches under it, and he has cigarettes taped underneath of it, so he starts smoking. Um, and after his run, he goes into a completely unfamiliar house. It's not his house, and it's not Nora's house, but he looks like it's the place where he's kind of, where do you go after the run, right? You go to a place you're going to take a shower and everything. Yeah, he's perfectly so, comfortable. Right. Um, and so then there's a woman in there, and it doesn't sound like Nora, and so we're like, wait, wh- wh- what's this house? Who's this woman? And, uh, you know, she's in the background. It's blurry. And she, um, you know, walks up to the front and it's Lori. And she's speaking. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? And, you know, we haven't heard Amy Brenneman uh, speak. At all. You know, she hasn't said one word. Like you had said the other day when we were talking about this, even when they were in the uh, the diner. And Patty was like, you can speak. She refused to speak the entire time. So we've not, for eight episodes now, we have not heard her say one word. And now all of a sudden she's, you know, talking a lot. She's actually a psychologist. Yeah. So what we realize now is that uh, this is episodes taking place three years ago. Um, We don't know how, well, at least three years ago, you know, before the departure. And we see Jill and she's just kind of bubbly, like, teen girl and we might say oh well wow she really got changed by departure probably but also she got changed by you know your three years between 14 and 17 is huge 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 um but you know she's that kind of like you know 14 year old girl now and she's kind of goofy and silly and she smiles all the time and it's completely obviously different than the, the character that she is now so laurie's a psychologist uh patty is her patient she wants to adopt a dog from Gladys, and Gladys is the woman who was stoned to death, right? And we discovered that it was Patty and the the guilty remnant that killed her, right? Which was that was a re- revelation from the the previous episode, right? Um, the chief, uh, Kevin's dad, is not crazy. Uh, potentially messing about with the mayor. Um, who's just a councilwoman at the time. We see that there's definitely troubles with the Garvey marriage. 
Uh, Laurie's actually pregnant, we discovered, but she hasn't told Kevin yet. Um, Kevin is chasing around the de- a deer, uh, not the deer. There's definitely weird things with deer, but there's a deer going around trashing uh, places just like the deer that trashed Kevin's house in, in the first episode. And so he you know, finally tracks down the deer, uh, but doesn't shoot it. And it ends up running out into the street and getting hit by a car, at which point he does shoot it. And then he goes, ends up sleeping with the woman uh, who was driving the car. And, and this is the, we, we knew that we knew before, cause he had told us that he was, was, you know, having sex when the departure happened. And, and here is the woman who it was, uh, we see Nora with her family. And whereas, you know, we would think her family is like super close and everything. She's, she's a very frustrated, um, single mom. She's trying to get a job and, uh, her husband is not around. He says he's working all the time Now we know he's having sex with the, the kid's teacher. Um, but so he's not around at all. And Nora's trying to get things done on her own and still, uh, also, uh, get a job. And so she's kind of getting very stressed out, which is, you know, it ends up being a rather tragic uh, scene as, as we'll see at the end there. Um, we see Matthew and his wife, I think Katie was her name, right? Or Mary, Mary, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, they're at the doctor's office where, uh, Laurie is. And apparently Matthew, uh, thinks he has cancer, but he comes out and everything's okay. Um, they're happy. And, and Mary says, well, I'll drive home. And, you know, again, you know, dramatic irony that we know that this decision for her to drive is what's going to, you know, she's going to, they're going to get an accident. She's going to get hurt. Um, so basically it's everything leading up to the departure. So what we see are, are things are, are, you know, things weren't exactly spectacular before the departure, right? you know? Uh, especially for Kevin. And he says that he, he says to his, he has this big talk with his dad and he's like, I don't know why I'm not happy. Right. Like he's got a beautiful wife. He's got beautiful kids. They've got a nice house. Why, why is that not enough? He's, he's frustrated with himself that that's not enough. And so, you know, does that play in with, you know, his character after the departure? Yeah, And I think uh, part of the irony is that, that his wife is a psychologist, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. You know. Now we do find out though that the son is not his. Right. Which I didn't know that. Well, we didn't know. I don't think. We no. No. We definitely did not know that. But but clearly, he sees him as his son, and his son sees him as his father. Even though there's that little, you know, where where uh, you know the son is going to find his biological father and all that. Well, yeah, he keeps kind of stalking his biological dad. And, uh, you know, it's funny because Kevin hits the guy and says, you know, don't, don't ever touch my kid again. Right. So, um, but, but, but yet if we look after the departure, the relationship between Kevin and, and Tommy is, I wouldn't say it's strange because they haven't, really talk to communicate with one another, but obviously something's going on where Tommy doesn't want to be around, you know, or he, he, he I don't know. Yeah. Well, we'll find out. Hopefully the I whole mean, family is involved in cults except for Kevin. So it's just, you know, um, and so what happens is all these things that we knew were going to happen. Um, the woman that Kevin was sleeping with disappears. 
Um, we know what happens to Mary. Uh, Nora, obviously, is the most heartbreaking scene uh, where she, her kid spills juice on her phone. She gets mad. She yells at the kid. Uh, she turns around. She's trying to wipe off her phone because she's expecting a call to find out she's got a job. She turns around. Her family's gone. Um, Laurie, actually, it could be... It's, it's, it's probably 50-50, which is more heartbreaking, that scene or Laurie getting the sonogram. and uh, Oh, my God. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and the fact that they don't show it to us right. was brilliant. Right. We, but, you know, like, it's like you know, you know. But, but they don't show you, you know. In, in fact, I mean, we knew the minute that she was pregnant, I, you probably figured, okay, well, I think the baby probably got taken because, you know, A, um, she doesn't have a baby. There is no baby. And uh, B, that would be something tragic enough to cause someone to join a group like the Guilty Remnant. Yeah. See, I thought she was maybe going to have an abortion or something like that. This, But this is even... Uh, you know, yeah. Oh, just, yeah. Just brilliant storytelling. Yeah. Like, if, if there's one thing to say throughout this series is the storytelling is fantastic you know just really well done and this whole episode is just dripping with the dramatic irony and just so we know what's going to happen we see nora and we know what's going to happen with their family we see kevin he meets this attractive woman and you know what's going to happen and you know what's going to happen with laurie and you know what's going to happen with jill and tommy and all these characters we see them now and you know tommy and jill like he he really likes his sister you know not all that can't be said of every brother you know but he really likes his sister he likes hanging out with her he goes to and he's like kind of goofy with her right yeah he's like a happy-go-lucky kid who's always smiling he's not like the super serious world on my shoulders kid that he is now yeah so so that's the leftovers all right well Uh, you know what the the last episode's not tonight actually i discovered it's next next week there's no it's not on tonight hbo isn't showing they're they're showing the hobbit on damon lindelof's headstone they ought to put the man knew how to write a flashback scene yeah so, no, t- no question yep all right well i'm going to talk about extant and we had two episodes this week episodes nine and ten uh entitled care and feeding and a pack of cards uh aired together back to back august 27th 2014 and we've we've had this storyline uh, with Ethan, who is the uh, android son of of John and Molly, and we see him, and he's in his father's workshop with Odin, which uh, you would love the character of Odin if you were watching this show. And uh, Ethan has rescued. Is that Odin or Axel? No, this is Odin. All right, he, he okay. Ethan has we we saw a scene earlier or, or in the previous week where there was this uh, robot. A droid that basically it it you know cl- it cleaned up it was you know a, a custodial type bot but it had been damaged by a group of little you know delinquents and he has his father rescue it and and so he can repair it and so they're in his father's workshop and he opines that the bot has lost his purpose and then odin shows ethan his arm which is he detaches because it's a a replacement bionic arm. And he goes through, we have this whole discussion, which I think is really crucial. And he explains how he had to redefine his own purpose because he had been a soldier and then he lost his arm. And, you know, now he could no longer be a soldier. 
you know, what we see in a lot of this episode is that Ethan, you know, this, this little boy uh, is trying to figure out his own purpose and, and the fact that he's an Android, you know, makes it even more fascinating because his father had wanted him to be as human as possible. And, and, you know, that's that whole, be careful what you wish for, uh, because you may get it. Um, and we see e- Odin really trying to bond with Ethan. He tells him this whole guys like you and me, we have to stick together. And, and if you're watching the show, you remember that we saw Odin in his little, uh, meeting his little anti-technology group and he holds up the picture uh, of Ethan so we know that he's up to no good and that that all of this is just some sort of a ruse we we just don't know uh, yet what that's going to be now you know the other thing in this first episode the other storyline is that the offspring which is this alien we assume alien human hybrid because we're there's still some discussion over whether molly is actually its mother or whether she was simply the host and and she sees it as her baby and she sees herself as the mother and we see via phone sparks tells yasumoto that the offspring escaped I'm no longer the man for this job, and you know, you, I, I, you just have to replace me. And then we see him throw all his tech away, disables his car's transponder. He can't be tracked, and we know it's all a lie because he has the offspring. Um, see, John goes to Yasumoto for help locating Molly, and uh, then Yasumoto goes through this whole: uh, the world is about to change forever in very fundamental ways. We're witness to a seismic shift in human history, and we're not sure what it is he's referring to because the two storylines that are going on are the one with with Ethan as this you know the, this android who is human for all intents and purposes, and the extraterrestrial being that is clearly here, and for you know all that we can see. Uh, there is now a human alien hybrid child that that is growing. So we're not sure what he's referring to. Uh, you know, people that watch the show figure that at some point the two plot lines are going to have to intersect, but they haven't really yet. We, we know that Sparks and his wife divorced over the fact that his daughter Katie was an astronaut and died in space, and we assume all along that the mother blames uh, Sparks for their daughter's death, which uh, seems to be pretty accurate. But he calls his wife and he says, listen, you got to come out here. It's about Katie. And the wife is like, "Uh, don't do this to me. He goes, look, I can't explain it to you. Just come out. If after you see what I'm going to show you, you want to go, I'll never contact you again. And and his wife, uh, you know, comes out. Uh, Krieger, Interesting because we've seen Krieger all along as being this nutcase, you know, that he was in space. He had the same kind of experience that Molly had. And now, you know, he's this raving lunatic. But as this episode goes on and and into the next one, he's the one that makes the most sense that this is not a normal baby and we need to kill it, which obviously seems, you know, horrific that we want to kill this innocent baby. But this innocent baby can, with its mind, we assume, cause a whole room full of mercenaries to turn their guns on each other, 
So it's certainly not an innocent baby. And then, you know, Molly meets with Yasumoto, who claims that he made a mistake taking the baby from its mother. Now wants to help find it. And we're not sure what uh, his his motives really are. I mean, he, he's a guy that's that's got like 100 days to live, and he's been trying to do these things to prolong his life. So, you know, we're not sure what his stake in all of this is and whether he's good or bad. So, again, I guess that's part of the beauty of the episode. All right, so we go into the, to the episode 10, and, you know, we're back to Ethan, and he and John have a heart-to-heart. And, and you know, the, the, the heartbreaking thing here is that Ethan's a machine. He knows he's a machine, yet he tells his father that, that you know, I think I thought you've been mad with me all of this time. And, you know, the father, it's like, oh, it's not that. It's that, you know, you're growing up and and I'm having a lot of difficulty coping with that. And Ethan tells him, well, you're upset because I won't need you anymore. That's like, wow, pretty powerful for a little kid. And then John levels with him about Yasumoto. We talked about the plan that's, that Max executes in Dark Angel. Well, they've got uh, not quite as brilliant a plan, but uh, you know, pretty cool nonetheless. But as Ethan gets out the elevator door while John's distracting Yasumoto, we see Femi Dodd sees Ethan as the door closes. And then we obviously go back to that, that meeting where Odin and his little band of anti-technology people, he's holding up the picture that this is enemy number one, or he, I mean, he doesn't say it in those words, but holds up the picture of Ethan. And then we see that Femi Dodd is part of the group as well. And for all we know, she might even be the leader of it, but, but that's still, um, you know, to be determined. Uh, and then regarding the offspring, Spark's wife comes out to the cabin where Sparks has the offspring. And what we obviously know about the offspring is that the offspring can allow a person to see one of their dead loved ones. And that not only can they see this child, this mother, this ex-husband, ex-lover, but you can touch them and that they can talk and they can hold conversations. And how the offspring does it, uh, we don't know. But when, you know, so that, that the, they're projecting the daughter, Katie, as a child, as a I don't know, seven or eight year old, and the wife just immediately buys into it. And then we see how manipulative the offspring is because the, through Katie, he needs your help. And if you help him, then I can stay. Right. So it's, a, it's like this emotional blackmail. I'm, you know, I'm not sure where they're going to be taking this. Um, but. The other cool thing, you know, in the same way that we don't actually see the baby disappear from the sonogram in, in the leftovers, we still have not seen the offspring. So, I mean, we had seen it at once uh, when it was in its incubator, but since it's been taken by Sparks, we still haven't seen it. So, whew, I'm telling you, dude, you got to watch this show at some point. <laughs> yeah maybe um it's it's yeah, it. well the good thing is i don't i don't know that there's going to be a season two and and even if there is i'm pretty confident they're going to wrap up the storylines you know because i mean that was the intention in the first place just like with under the dome so right well, and i don't know if we said this on on the show but you know it's always kind of like a bad sign when they start doubling up shows at the end yeah that's what i'm worried about defiance you know like they did the last two weeks they 
you know, doubled up those last two weeks. I'm not sure what that means. Yeah, I don't either. But uh, all right, so convince me why I should keep watching Falling Skies. Okay, well, you should keep watching Falling Skies because Falling Skies is awesome. It was probably a little bit more awesome when they had like the split stories and they're following like three. Um, but I, now, I, I, I even I will admit I am a big Falling Skies fan. But this plan to bring down, uh, you know, the um, the Ishveni by flying a spaceship up to the moon and taking out their power supply seems, uh, you know, I mean. To say far-fetched, you would say, but it's science fiction about an alien invasion of the Earth and the enslavement of the human race. Yes, I take that, but also there's even parts of there that seem to push it beyond belief, and, and this plan's kind of one of them. But, so they got, so that's the plan, right? And they've, they've got this captured Beamer, and they just got to figure out how to fly it, and um, it's kind of one of those funny things where the kid's like, Dad, how about, you know, get out of here, kid, like, get, out of here. You know, get away from that, you're, you're just a little kid, and then, of course, um, Matt goes in there, and he, he's the one who figures out how to, to steer the, the Beamer. Right, and it took them all um, about 15 seconds. Ex- exactly, so what were, like, the adults looking at the whole time, right? Yeah. Um, so the problem is that, well, they, they figure really all they have to do is get it into space. And that once it's in space, that the moon base, oddly enough, and, and uh, you know, I guess for points of plot, uh, very conveniently, will have a homing beacon that will just take it in. And so they can fly up there and then destroy it. They're going to need two, it's a two-man job. Someone's got to fly the, the ship and the other one's got to drop the explosives or whatever they're going to do to... But um, this episode really kind of focuses on Tom's leadership, which a lot of it has been. Uh, and this is kind of what we realized that, well, and they've touched on this before, but that, uh, you know, Tom is used to kind of dictating, right? He's a bit of a dictator. He's, he doesn't really, uh, he will ask for other people's opinions, but when he makes decisions, they're usually unilaterally made. And we see the second mass start to bristle at that because he's just assumes that he's going to be the one to do this. Everyone's like, you're kind of important back here. Why don't you let someone else do it? Uh, but that's not how Tom rolls, right? He, he's all about uh, leading from the front. And I can't ask someone else to risk their life for, for my plan and everything. Uh, but he is... Matt and the others say, well, we should, you know, draw straws. And so they put everyone's names into the hat. Um, Pope actually takes uh, Tom and uh, um, Weaver's names out. Like there's this big scene, Weaver catches Pope uh, taking names out of the hat and they fight. But we realize Pope wasn't taking out his own name. He was taking out Tom's and Weaver's names because he said they're too important. And he wants to be the, the hero, right? He wants to be the guy who gets to heroically risk his life and everything. So, yeah, and I'm not sure um, what the change, I mean, you know, is, is it about the girl? I mean, is, I think, I think it is. Yeah. I think it, it has to do with, uh, I, I can't remember the, the character's name, but you know, uh, Mia Sorvino's character, I think is really what's kind of making them come around a little bit here. So there's also now uh, Hal and Ben and Maggie. There's a little love triangle here. Uh, Maggie and Ben, because the spikes, they, they're, they're attracted to, like, 
you know, Maggie is all into Hal, but with the spikes light up, she can't, she can't resist Ben, you know, uh, and for Ben, he's always, you know, been, you know, kind of digging on, on Maggie. Um, then, so this causes, you know, a certain level of awkwardness, uh, especially as Hal walks in not once, but twice to see them kissing, which is, you know, like I said, awkward is, is kind of the word for it. Um, though, you know, it, uh, Ultimately, Hal comes around and says, you know what, it's really Maggie's decision. She'll do what she wants to do. She'll do what's going to make her happy. So for the brothers to get pissed at each other, he, he just he realizes it's silly and ultimately sees um you know, sees Ben off and says, you know, you know wishes him well on his mission. Well, I like Tom's approach. You're not the first two brothers to fall for the same girl. Right. Exactly. Um and so, and you know, back to Tom because we had the they pulled the names out of the hat and as you see Ben was the first one and then Tom actually had tucked his name into his sleeve that he pulls it out and says his name but Pope obviously knows and Weaver both know that there is some tomfoolery going on because they know that uh, that Pope pulled Tom's name out so so that's like and then basically they're they're ready to leave and i'll leave i'll stop right before the very end and let's talk about lexi for a little bit um so we see lexi getting kind of her jedi training uh from the ishveni and learning how to kill things and tear things apart and everything um well well, now she calls him her father is it literally her father yeah, see, I mean, well, it's it's really see. I thought it was just me with this, right? Um, because she was calling Tom Tom Mason and not Dad or Father or anything like that, and then she was referring to this as Fanny as Father. Uh, does she mean that literally? I mean, we know we saw that there was a uh, some when you know uh, when Anne was in the spaceship, there was some kind of tube connecting the Overlord to Anne. Uh, so what exactly was going on there? We're not sure. Is this guy literally her father? You know, we don't know. But what we do know is that when you have a second phone line in the house, you shouldn't talk about how you're going to kill your kids. Good point. When they might be listening in. Good point. Because <laughs> Lexi hears the overlords totally plotting to kill her. And, uh, and obviously that doesn't sit well, especially like she was, Oh, the, she just assumed that they were good, right? They're the good guys and that the humans were the bad ones who just kill and are nasty. Um, and she just wants everyone to be peace, love and happiness. Right. Uh, and now she realizes that this guy who she called father, who she trusted implicitly, um, is agreeing to this plan to, to kill her. And so when the guy goes to choke her, she just, you know, uses her new found talent of, you know, tearing things up with her mind, uh, and she kills him. So now we cut back to the second mass, and uh, Ben and Tom are getting ready to leave. And as they're preparing to get into the Beamer, they see a bunch of Beamers coming in. So they're under attack, and now you're just like, oh, well, so much for that plan, because they're all going to die now. Uh, but all of a sudden, the beamers start falling out of the sky, and everyone's like, what's going on? And of course, we know what's going on, and Lexi shows up, and uh, and she's the one who has uh, destroyed these beamers, and she's come to back, apparently, to help the humans. And she says, you know, hello, Father, to, to Tom. Yeah. So, um, 
So it seems like, uh, and, and tonight is the two-part uh, season finale, so we'll see uh, what uh, what goes from there. But uh, having Lexi on their side is is a uh, obviously a good sign, since her powers are obviously formidable. Yes. So, All right. Sounds good. Yeah, well, it's a lot to talk about. There's, you know, again, there's so many shows we like. We, we haven't even mentioned Doctor Who, and and we'll get to that I think next episode. But right, uh, yeah, like we used to do full podcasts. Like we talked for an hour on Doctor, we like barely mentioned it. Yeah, well, well, you you, you, you on, haven't man? seen the second one, and and that's right. Uh, um, I, I'll just say real quickly, like a lot of people, the season eight premiere. I thought it was really, really slow for about 30 to 40 minutes. And then the last half hour just kicked ass. And the second episode just continued. It was just, awesome. Just, so I'm, I'm just going to leave it at right. that. Uh, I won't say yeah. anymore now. Okay. You know, I, I will say this, though, that I went back. I've, I've seen the, the season eight premiere uh, three times now. Okay. And the I, I, you know, I think the, the first time... Um, the the first half hour or so, his because his character is so the doctor's so out of touch still and and weirded out by the regeneration that um you know I I, I wasn't sure what he was going to be like so I was very on edge and on guard the first time, but on further viewings when I know he's going to turn out all right he's going to be the doctor in the end, um, I was able to appreciate it a lot more so yeah. cool. Anyway. All right. Well, listen, we're glad you could join us tonight. And if you'd like to send some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Emails to fatalistpodcast at gmail.com. Voicemails via SpeakPipe, which you can access through the Fatalist website. We will be back next week to talk about Dark Angels Episode 3, titled Heat. But until next time. Ow, you touched my ass, man. <laughs>